Cahagia, all of the United Methodist Church in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. We're um, very privileged to come to your household and we consider a real honor observing proper distancing and, and masking anything over you know, 10 feet. And um, as we open up our worship service today, I'm going to call on Boone, one of our newer members, if he, he's come and we're going to kind of responsibly read from scripture. And um, you can remain seated. And we're going to have you stand kind of midway through the service. But Boone has agreed to um, share from the insert 636. If you go to 636, reviewing by way of television, this responsive reading is taken from John chapter 14 and 16. Here in a few weeks, the United Methodist Church celebrates Laity Sunday, and we're going to try to get as many people involved in the worship service on Laity Sunday. But at this time, if you turn to 636 in your bulletins, and may God bless the reading and hearing of the word. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Thank you, Kurt. Let us continue in our order of service today as we um, have a word of prayer. Father, we just want to thank you again for the privilege of coming before you this morning and, and looking at Scripture and 
And we ask your blessings upon the scripture, the messages that are given today, and the needs of our country. For you are our almighty God. You are our comfort and strength. We have been navigating through this pandemic with a sense of anxiety and uncertainty and isolation. We, we have lived in fear rather than faith of a disease, of death, and not having enough. Yet we are here offering our gifts of worship, finances, and time for the work of your kingdom and reminding ourselves of the glory about to be revealed to us. Remind us, O oh Lord, that we are your children. You said, suffer not your children. Come on to thee. That it would be better for a, a person to have a millstone fastened about their neck and cast in an ocean than to cause destruction to a baby, a child, that we are your heirs, we are your children. Remind us that your plan is not bondage or decay, but, but a love that will save us and free us. In Christ's name we pray as you taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, we'll have our special music. And Mike, if you want to come forward and be on deck and grab that scripture, and, and I know many people just love that, that music by Clarice and, and our beloved Lee. Lee, you're not going south this, this fall, are you? We better keep the bullet on that. Probably not, though, actually. We will see it for Yeah, I understand it's COVID. It's worse down there. Yeah. Better stick with us. Come in there. Uh, I don't take a moment to talk about
Good morning, brothers and sisters. Our lesson today is, is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. It reads, When the day drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. He went to enter the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the people would not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire down from heaven and consume them? But then he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Our lesson is, verse 51 doesn't just say that Jesus wanted or preferred to go to Jerusalem. It reads, he said his mind, his face to go there. He was determined to travel there because he knew where he was going and why he needed to go there. Samaria was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a territory that only barely tolerated Jews because they had a polytheist religion. That means they believed in many gods. They didn't worship the one and only. They worshiped many gods. And the Samaritans had a strong dislike for Jews because they felt Jews looked down on them because they're polytheist religion. Jesus began, Jesus was Jewish, was Jewish, but was not entirely welcome because of that fact. Verse 53 says, the people would not receive him because his face was set for Jerusalem. The dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans was mostly due displacement of the temple. The Jews believed that God's temple should be in Jerusalem. The Samaritans thought it should be right where they built it, on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans had heard the Lord's miracles and his claim to be the Messiah. They had heard of Jesus, but they were probably hoping that Jesus would tell them that where they had said the temple was correct. If he had done this, they probably would have received him with joy at Thanksgiving. But they knew he was on his way to Jerusalem. So they figured, well, he wants to see where we're putting the temple to the right spot. So they rejected him. And rather coldly ignored him. When James and John, John saw the treatment of Jesus, they said, Hey, you want to call out fire from heaven to consume them? It's laughable in a weird sort of way. Despite his disagreement with the Samaritans, Jesus kind of put the disciples in their place. He said, No! We're not going to see your mortal destruction. We have to love and tolerate our enemies. That is the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, to love and tolerate them. We shouldn't pray for people to die because they disagree with us. We should go on set. We must not think that way because we are basically on the right side with our worship of the Lord and God. And we should pray that they come to that realization for themselves. Don't pray for their death. Pray for their conversion to the truth. 
but maybe even more so we should pray for our own patience and our ability to withstand and tolerate any kind of amount of abuse we get because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should never pray for their moral death. In verse 56, the disciples were rebuked. They were rebuked and said, man, don't think that way. And they went to another town for the Lord. Thank you, Mike. And Mike is working as our lead, elegant and lead person. In a couple months, we're the Methodist Church, normally the middle of October day, of late on Sunday, which is to be a service that's entirely run by the lay people. Mike's not only represented us in, in lay um, events on annual conference levels, but um, he shares, you know, God's word. He takes a lot of time and he's quite serious about that. So we thank you, Mike, and, and um, you're mentoring Owen quite well. With we have a couple ministers coming out of the shoot here shortly. And Lee, thank you for, for sharing. <clears throat> People really look forward to, to music and clarets. And, and, um, we take a, a segment out of our service um, that we put on the radio because a, a gentleman had stepped forward with $10,000 to um, utilize that time um, for on radio, and it's going to be expiring the last, I'll be having the last Friday in August. And it's basically been kind of a team approach by a professor from um, Luther Sam, who was a United Methodist minister, Dr. Joy. Joy, she does one day a week, and then um, um, Asa, the United Methodist minister, and Pilgrim. Than myself. And that um, <clears throat> subsidy is, is running out. And, and we do want to thank um, 980 for promoting that. It. It's, it's on podcast. And it's, I want to thank, thank Garwin and those who run the camera for television and, and Robin that makes sure it's on the um, um, podcast and YouTube and we've been hearing around the world our messages and especially 98. So as we go to our, our radio, I also kind of want to thank the fact that um, that Paul, Paul Peterson, all the way out in California, he's so faithful. He, he sends um, periodically, it gets me a little nervous when he sends me a card because inside that card there's an envelope there's a fresh $100 bill and it comes all the way from California. So I make sure that goes to the offering plate immediately. So that, you know, sometimes you dial a little deposit in. And then this past week, um, our beloved Elsie Bolquist, who appreciates our ministry, and she's followed me for almost 50 years now, and churches I've served, and we had wonderful relationships, and she um, retired school teacher. And I have a, a card out there. You want to make sure you sign that card. And I was so surprised that when she um, sent us, uh, she's always been faithful, remembering our birthdays and our anniversaries. And she sent that anniversary card this past week. And um, she wrote a check for $1,000 to all of the 
church. We want to thank those by way of television here at all of the United Methodist Church for your faithful support, your prayer support, and your financial support. Many of you know me as Dr. Randy Haber from all of it, United Methodist Church here in Robinsdale, Minnesota. We um, support the cause of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Scripture that was read, read to you today has often been um, confused and maligned, utilized by fake news. It was almost fake news, fake propaganda during Jesus' time. You use your commentaries. I'm a great student of history, and especially biblical history. This past week, I, I, I witnessed a number of media outlets and using um, fake news or phony news, um, misinterpreting Abraham's Lincoln, Lincoln's um, text. And sometimes they'll just take a portion of it and not tell the remainder of it. The remainder of it, um, John Wesley would say that the half of truth is basically a heresy. Apostle Paul dealt with, that, dealt with that too. There were skirmishes, there were divisions in the early church too. But I'm reminded that during the Civil War, a friend, a friend of Abraham Lincoln tried to comfort President Lincoln by assuring him that God was on his side. I heard that comment by Lincoln a number of times this past week. It seems like people like to preface their beliefs by saying that God, God is on their side. But if you look at the entire sentence of what Abraham Lincoln said, Mr. Lincoln replied, and this is his words verbatim, he said, sir and brother, my concern is not whether God, whether God is on my side. And catch the difference now. He goes on to say, but to be sure that I am on God's side. Do you understand the importance, the dialectical difference between the two? Many people don't. Because they don't understand history. They don't understand contemporary times. I ask you this morning, just, just whose side is God on? Whose side is God on? John Wesley said that you could differentiate by whose side people were on because of the use of four fundamentals, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. What scripture says, what tradition has utilized for many years, and what reason and experience. Just whose side has God on? In our own time, we have seen godly men and godly women at war with each other and each claiming that God was on their side. The racial, the racial disturbances in so many sections of our country today for years illustrate this. And on both sides of the issue can be found people who claim to be Christians and who are praying that God will champion their cause and destroy their adversaries. You can see it in the scripture text today. 
even the disciples of Jesus were saying, shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy our adversaries? Well, who is the enemy of God and who's, whose enemy is God? There's a, there's a tricky difference here. In the story of our text there, Jesus encountered these questions from his disciples. They were passing through a village, probably much like Robinsdale, on their way to Jerusalem, the capital, St. Paul. And the disciples, realizing the urgency, the urgency of the hour, because they were passionate, they were urgent, they were passionate, were not at all patient with the villagers who refused to receive Jesus and what he stood for. They wanted the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they wanted Jesus to command fire, fire to come down from heaven and destroy those who did not accept Jesus. Their attitude expresses the attitude of so many, even in religious work today. And you may ask the question, which the disciples asked, why, why possess power and not use it. And Jesus' stern answer to his disciples of that first century would also be timely for some in our century. You don't know where and what the Christian spirit is. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy people's lives, Jesus says, but to save them. To save them. Now, several significant revelations about God are suggested here. Number one is that God is not the enemy of our enemies. Secondly, God is not our enemy. And thirdly, God is not the enemy of his enemies. And then as we close out, God is ultimately the enemy of sin. And it's for you and I to decide what sin is, according to God's word. God is not the enemy of our enemies. Now this will be a terrible, terrible blow to maybe our television audience or our radio audience, to some who have sought God's power in behalf of their personal crusades. It literally shapes the foundation of our egotism. Are you willing to admit that each and every one of us have a certain level of ego? Egotism to realize that God loves our enemies as much as he loves us. Oftentimes, when I'm asked to speak to the Senate or House of Representatives, I, I work these lines in because I see the animosity. That regardless of the disciples' motives, even if it were to solicit disciples for Jesus, bringing fire down upon those villagers would have been wickedness, a sense of wickedness for Jesus. And Jesus knew that his heavenly Father was, according to Psalms 5, verse 4, not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. God does not rejoice in any evil, 
even if it is the destruction of our enemies. We need to be terribly careful of the sin of trying to make our enemies God's enemies. Shakespeare, and I read a lot of Shakespeare, but I don't often quote it from the pulpit, but Shakespeare warned us, warned his readers that heat, not a furnace for your foe, so hot that it do singe yourself. Overcoming such a spirit requires that we try to understand that God loves every person, man and woman, boy and girl. But he also said that suffer not the little children come unto me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. And it'd be better for anybody that causes a harm to a little one that a millstone be hung around their neck and be cast in the sea. There's a motto that I've, I've used, and it was a mentor of mine, a 90-year-old Baptist minister, Pastor Paul Twist, who I went to his birthday party yesterday. He used to have a program that was always on just before I'd, I'd leave the barn, come in and get dressed, catch the bus, and it was called Eat of Happiness from Pastor Paul Twist, 90 years old. I took a number of my friends to his church because he was one of the last churches that ever had a Sunday evening worship service or midweek worship service. And I'd get him saved there. And as a mentor, I learned that a theme of his life, which has become a theme of my life, that that I've gone through life trying to see Jesus, Jesus in the face of those who differ from, from me. Now, you can take that on yourself. Let me say it again. That I have gone through life trying to see Jesus Christ in the face of those who differ from me. How much heartache and how much headache, how much bloodshed would have been spared in this world some 1,500 establishments just in Minneapolis alone in just a few blocks. How much heartache and bloodshed would have been spared in this world had, had we followed this example? Longfellow, Longfellow tells us of something else we should seek in the life of our enemies. If we could read, if we could read the secret history of our enemies. The secret history of our enemies we should find in each of our enemies' life of sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all our hostilities. You and I, those by way of television, by way of radio and here, we, we who are involved in a, in a religious activities and righteous crusades, we, we need to be very careful that we do not assign God to our own enmities. The desire of every one of us to have our own way, even in marriage, how many problems in marriages? I just, I am so thankful for my son-in-laws that when I ask them a question, 
they answer it by saying, well, why don't you check with your daughter first? I don't know if I always said that when, I, when we were married early, Chris. But the desire of every one of us to have our own way becomes all the stronger when we know that our way is a good way. It becomes all the stronger when we know that this way is a good way. If you've ever read The Devils, The Devils of Loudon by Otis Huxley, Dr. Huxley, says of Audie Grandier, a long religious training had not abolished or even mitigated his self-love. And we found that in the scribes and the Pharisees, those politicians in Jesus' day who just wanted to extinguish his life and extinguish his ministry and sabotage whatever Jesus was saying constantly. The fake news and the phony things that they said about Jesus, it had only served to provide the eagles with some, I consider, a theological alibi. The untutored egotist really wants what they want. Give them a theological education and it becomes obvious to them that it becomes axiomatic. That what they want, they say, is what God wants. So not only, personally, one, that God is not the enemy of our enemies, but secondly, God, God is not our enemy. We know from Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose, yet we act sometimes as though we feel that God is deliberately at battle with us. If we would only review our situation before we become Christians, Recalling how God loved us and how God gave us His Son for us while we were sinners and remember that, that God is not willing that any should perish, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And how could we think that God could ever be, be against us? Yet often Christians go with the idea that God is working against them. And I am sure that in your life, or probably Joel's life, or my life, you know, when, you're, when you hear that word, answer, or some dilemma that occurs in your life. And Tina, you sure have gone through your dilemmas, and we can enumerate others that the loved ones, the idea that God is working against us, that He wants to hurt us, that he wants to deprive us of some pleasure or to cause us undue suffering. Jesus plainly said in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, He said, Fear not. Say it with me. Fear not. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, if God is not the enemy, of the Christian, then it must follow that God is not the enemy of the church or the officers of the church. There are times in our church work, not so much in our church, but what's going on in every denomination right now, when members of the church become divided against each other, they 
They fight, they, they pray against each other. Can you imagine that praying against each other? I tried to conduct church conferences for, for the district superintendent of the bishop. And, and when I asked people to pray, and it's almost like they begin praying, and they're praying against opposition. The opposition in, on one table, another division and representation on another table. Table and I can understand why they kind of delegated that job of being a DS and representing a, a charge conference for the DS. God is a God of all. How strange the words of, words of Jesus must have sounded to his. His very executioners, where he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And really, they kind of, they certainly had an idea of what they were doing when they were pounding those nails through the palms of his hand and through his ankles. Father, forgive them. They could not comprehend such an attitude. They, they expected to be cursed, and they expected to be hated for, not prayed for. Yet Jesus loved them to the very end, even as they plunged the very sword of sin into his soul and mocked him. And now the scriptures teach us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, it was the expression of the attitude and the spirit of God himself that we hear on the cross. It was God in Christ crying out for forgiveness for the sins of of you in the pulpits and you and by way of television and you by way of radio and those that are in the pulpits. It, it's God today who is constantly trying to cut through the obstinate barrier of, of rebellion and sin and break the hearts of those who would fight him so that they might learn to love God. God does not hound a person in order to hurt them but to help them. God does not put a person flat on their back just to see the realization of God's power and purpose in their lives. Are we saying that God is weak and that God does not know how to fight? Are we saying that God has no enemy and that all wickedness is his friend? Of course not. God, God does not have an enemy or let me repeat that, God does, God does have an enemy whom we shall now see. In our final point today, God is the enemy of sin. The enemy of sin. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. God eternally and persistently wages war against sin. And the devil is the adversary of the Lord, God omnipotent, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. There are principalities and powers of evil in the universe which God is constantly in battle with. He warns you and I, he warns his followers, Christians, against them, and, and gives the Christian the armor to battle, to battle with him according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. God is merciless, merciless when their sin is concerned and will burn it out of the heart of the most beloved. God will track it down and reveal it and tear it from the very soul of the one that he's trying to make 
in his own image. God hates sin. God knows what it did. What sin did in heaven. What sin did in heaven with the rebellion of Lucifer and, and on earth with the temptation of Adam and Eve and, and to his own son on the cross. God is the eternal enemy of sin. And sin is the eternal enemy of God. They can never be reconciled. God shall never accept sin, and sin shall never accept God. There is not room in the heart of a person for both. Either God reigns upon the throne of one's heart, or sin reigns. God forever will forever seem to be our enemy if we are embracing sin. Sin, while in truth, he is only trying to rest wrestle that sin from our lives. And when we finally join forces with God to, to fight the common enemy of sin in our own lives and in the lives of our loved ones and others, God will become our greatest friend and our champion. As I conclude, as I appeal to you, when the Apostle Paul was still known as Saul, Saul the persecutor, Two groups were praying. One group of Christians was praying that the man Saul and praying for his destruction before he destroyed the infant church itself. And there was another group praying not against the man Saul, but against the sin that lodged in Saul's heart. How we thank God that the first group was not heard and the second was. In sparing the Apostle Paul, God gave us the greatest saint of Christendom on the road to Damascus. Saul became Paul, the greatest saint of the Christendom Church, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ and his rich doctrine of heritage. Father, this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and Christians in prayer, those by way of television and radio, perhaps you have been praying against a person and, and hoping that God would strike them down as our scripture said the disciples wanted to strike down the adversaries of Jesus. Why, why not begin praying that God would give that person a new life and a, and a new perspective? Today let us dedicate ourselves to love all as Jesus Christ did and to pray for all including those whom we think to be our enemies. Let us stand on the side of God against all sin, all sin everywhere, in our lives and in the lives of others. May we say this prayer. Dear Jesus, we pray for our seemingly adversaries. We ask, O oh Lord, that you give us words of wisdom in marriage, with our neighbors, with friends and folk. Forgive our failures. Help, help us to be reconcilers rather than adversaries. Come into our heart. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.
you also join me for the offertory prayer for before we stand for the doxology printed in your bulletins? God of all creation, as we offer our gifts to you this day, we remember the questions Jesus put to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? We pray that we might be ready to answer with our lips, but also with our lives and with our gifts. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Would you stand now with me for the doxology, please? Amen. 